basically played around with the tabular mirror senus, trying to develop methods for accurate single-cell aging clocks. And the short story is we did manage to crack this problem, you know, uh, like generate accurate aging clocks with single-cell transcriptomes. I think just before we were going to go ahead and do the CRISPR screen, you know, with this clock as a readout, we realized there were a couple of problems. Firstly, the, the, the screen we were planning would just be single CRISPR knockouts. So on a 10x genomics machine, you can do a single CRISPR knockout in each cell and get a simultaneous transcriptome for each cell. But that's only single gene perturbation. So you basically limit your question to how can I rejuvenate with a single gene? You know, the more exciting question is how can I rejuvenate? Like whether that's a combination of four genes or five genes, we don't know. In this episode, Daniel Eves, the founder of Shift Bioscience and part of Foresight's biotech and health extension accelerator, introduces their transcriptomic driver clock. It enables them to identify putative drug targets for safer cellular rejuvenation, which might avoid the challenges coupled to the therapeutic use of Yamanaka factors. Daniel goes into detail on what the clock enables, how they're planning to validate these putative targets, his wish list for tools that could help speed up and de-risk longevity and aging-focused drug development, and their upcoming capital raise. You can find a written summary, slides, and video on our website in the Biotech and Health Extension Group, sponsored by 100 Plus Capital. You can join these conversations virtually by applying to the group, or you can join in person at our annual member gatherings. More at foresight.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a good rating and tell your friends about us. Thank you. Not so long ago, we were talking about, you know, let's do something about this. And um, yeah, how can we slow aging? But the, the world's moved on considerably, um, and now I call it really a race for rejuvenation, and uh, just just yeah, a, a friendly race for rejuvenation. And um, and you know, I've just cherry picked eight. This is nowhere you know uh, near comprehensive. Uh, this is almost just my favourites, right? So I'm not you know not writing history here. Anybody could choose their own eight. Um, but I like these eight for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, that you know it's, it's about age reversal. Uh, so it's not just slowing it down, stopping it. It's about um, bringing yourself back to a younger biological age, which is effectively age reversal. Um, and you can sort of, you know, I can split split this group down the middle. So one is uh, blood-based rejuvenation. So changing the, the blood milieu um, to, to make it reju- rejuvenative. Um, and then there's this alternative paradigm, which is reprogramming, which is really basically cellular rejuvenation. And the blood-based rejuvenation, um, I've seen the most inroads in the clinic, um, probably because it's so safe, because you're just playing around with the blood composition in, in most part. Uh, so, you know, a lot of this is going to be familiar to the audience. We'll just cover a few of it. So Greg Farhi, uh, Intervene Immune, um, he reversed Grimage by a couple of years. That was persistent, uh, which was really exciting. Um, and, and I think he's in a phase two trial uh, with this cocktail, a um, couple of anti-diabetics and a growth factor. And with Tony Whiskeray is, is uh, using an altered blood plasma fraction. And he's, you know, he's done things in Parkinson's. And, you know, the age-related disease is a much higher bar than rejuvenation itself. You've got the aging and you've got the unraveling on top of aging. So really impressive to see things going on there. Uh, Arena Convoy, um, basically translating therapeutic plasma exchange. Super exciting because that's, that's a clinically approved therapy. 
Uh, let's see what it does outside of its original indication. Uh, Howard Catcher in rats is showing you can reverse uh, methylation age, which is our sort of best window into aging. And um, so far, about 50%. Like that's, you know, that's 50%. It's not like an incremental amount of reversal. It's, it's considerable. And you, you basically restore all of the organ functions to young levels. And um, so, I mean, that's exciting. And then on the, you know, on the reprogramming side, which is, you could argue maybe a more comprehensive type of rejuvenation, although, you know, it's like everybody's a winner here if, if these things work. And so, you know, you've got David Sinclair and basically it's, you know, taking pluripotency factors, playing with the, the composition of the factors, so reducing it to RSK, uh, reversing uh, methylation biomarkers of age, restoring functions, uh, which, is, which is a fantastic result. Um, Turn bio is doing great things. They've got an mRNA-based system and slightly more factors, but then, you know, that's comprehensive. And then you've got a couple of new efforts. Uh, well, Calico is not so new, but um, the initiative is relatively new, which is you know trying to sort of go deeper into reprogramming. So you know, let's look below the surface of what's going on, try and deconvolute the pathways. And uh, a recent paper, they showed that just ONS was sufficient to rejuvenate um, and it had about half the impacts on the identity of the cells, which is the big worry. Like we want to rejuvenate, but we don't want to turn into a bag of stem cells in the process. That's no good for anybody. Um, and then something that I'm excited about is, you know, um, Joe betts LaCroix and Retro Biosciences. So I think I just, I'm not trying to stalk their staff or anything, but everything that their staff is saying is very exciting. And it's like, you know, coming from a great place. Um, so apologies to the staff if you, you know, you've seen me following you. Um, but I'm excited about your company. Um, so that's the race. And then, you know, you know, why, why this discovery effort on cellular reprogramming? So, you know, why is, why is more discovery necessary? Why don't we just go ahead with what we know? Um, so I basically just call this uh, like a powerful rejuvenation paradigm, but with risks, yeah, just, just with some risks. And how we mitigate those risks is, you know, a, a, an area of active, active pursuit. So, Maybe just as a reminder, but in the top left graph, um, this is a data set from, I think, Yamanaka. And then Tamir Chandra at Edinburgh analyzed this data set using the DNA methylation clock, so Horvath's methylation clock, and basically showed if you look at the focus on the blue line, um, which is methylation years or epigenetic age, you can take uh, a cell from age 60 down to age zero in uh, just 17 days. So, you know, 60 years to build up that aging and just 17 days to uh, jettison it from the system. So, you know, about as rapid a rejuvenation as we um, have come across so far. And the exciting thing is up until about 15 days, and um, these cells still retain their original identity, uh, you know, not 100%, but they've still got a memory of it and can revert back to their identity. So there's a, there's a sort of zone where you can rejuvenate but not become a stem cell. And um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's according to the clock, but that's just a biomarker. And um, if you express... Uh, a subset of these Yamanaka factors in the optic nerve um, of aged mice, you can restore a sort of remarkable ability that only newborn mice have. So basically newborn mice, if you crush their optic nerve, a bit of a barbaric essay, if you cr crush their optic nerve, it degenerates. Um, and a, a newborn mouse can basically yeah, regenerate that optic nerve. And after just a few days, that mouse lose the loses the ability to regenerate its optic nerve. Um, however... If you put the factors back in to the mouse and express them, um, basically an aged mouse can now regenerate its optic nerve, just like a newborn mouse. So you regain these functions. And so that's quite a dramatic result, you know, about as dramatic functional result as you can, uh, you know, come across. 
And then just on the right hand side, this graph, um, you can you basically you can increase lifespan in mice, and but you have to be in this Goldilocks zone, um, not too little because nothing happens, not too much because you get these uh, pluripotent teratomas, sort of scary cancers. And um, but if you're just in the middle, which is basically partial reprogramming or uh, you know, just pulsed pulsed reprogramming, you get a nice lifespan lifespan extension in progeroid mice in this case. I'm sure there'll be some interesting follow-up studies um, to come, but anyway, there's, there's, you know, this is this is basically a very promising paradigm. But these are pluripotency factors. Yeah, we let, let's not forget that they're designed to make things into stem cells, um, and that is, you know, sort of a, um, a it's, it's the direction of cancer, right? You know, um, the, the direction of stem cells. So uh, we need to proceed with care. So you know, if we, if we do something in one system, would it necessarily work in the other? We don't know. So it'd be great to increase the safety window, like not worry about playing with fire, so to speak, or walking the tightrope. So um, so where do we fit into this? Because uh, I didn't start out um, interested in cellular reprogramming. Um, so I'll just try and tell you some high level of the story, and then we can sort of unwrap it a little bit. Uh, so yeah, just just the high level. Um, we've identified, it's where we are now, and um, we've identified uh, some putative drug targets for safer cellular rejuvenation. Um, basically by applying uh, machine learning driver clocks to cell reprogramming. So machine learning, with you know, we aren't the first people to arrive at uh, machine learning, but I think it's, it's our application to cell reprogramming we're excited about. And we're basically re- ready to validate these targets. We've got this list of genes that we want to throw into a cell, and now it's just a matter of just bringing in slightly more financing and then you know testing testing these genes and seeing if the bioinformatics is as exciting as we think it is. So let's just sort of go back to the beginning, um, just of the startup journey, and... Um, so we set out in 2017 with the backing of Jonathan Milner, who's an angel in Cambridge, UK, uh, basically to tackle mitochondrial DNA mutations. So this is a, a type of damage that accumulates with age. Um, and we had sort of some promising uh, sort of tall molecules that could basically combat these mitochondrial DNA mutations. Uh, something I wanted to um, sort of look at early on was like, can we show, you know, that you know, in a, in a sort of an unarguable way that this is the right approach to therapeutic intervention and aging. It was actually my investor, Jonathan, that put me in the direction of the epigenetic aging clocks. He said, oh, have you heard about these aging clocks? And I hadn't, right, because I was a little bit blinkered. It was like, you know, mitochondria was my world. Um, so, but the moment I found out about these clocks, it presented a fantastic opportunity to audit our hypothesis. So if mitochondrial DNA mutations were really you know, the be all and end all of aging, then they should have a dramatic effect um, on this epigenetic epigenetic aging clock, which was sort of an agreed upon measure of aging. Yeah, I know there's lots of measures of aging, but uh, this was relatively new as far as something everybody could agree on. Um, so we we basically we'd, we'd um, done a mouse experiment with this mouse called the mutator mouse. Basically, it has way more mitochondrial DNA mutations and it gets older faster. Yeah, it gets premature aging. So you know, it's very provocative, uh, you know, the link between this damage and the aging phenotype. Um, and we, we had a drug that we could basically slow down some of these aging phenotypes. So there were two questions. Does this mouse, which shows a premature aging phenotype, show acceleration of the clock? Yeah. You know, is there this really strong link between mutations and the clock? That's the first question. Second question was, does our drug impact the clock? And um, so there was no such thing as a mouse clock service that we could send samples off for measurements. But Wolfry could just uh, sort of define the first multi-tissue mouse epigenetic clock because uh, these are mouse experiments. I couldn't use the original Horvath clock. Um, uh, yeah, Wolf didn't have any spare hand. 
So what we did was we we sort of recruited uh, Romina, our sort of first force home employee, and we embedded her in Wolf's lab, basically to learn the methods so that, you know, we, we weren't taking up any bandwidth, um, but just, you know, doing what we needed to do. Um, and we, we measured the clock in our mice. And surprisingly, the mutator mouse, although it showed a, a premature aging phenotype on the outside, the clock wasn't accelerated at all. So the, the clock was just the age of the mouse, chronological age of the mouse, even though the mouse looked dramatically older. So that was a surprise to us. Even more surprising was that we slowed down the epigenetic aging clock in these mice, right? So there, was, there didn't seem to be a connection between the clock and the mutations, but a drug designed to reduce the mutation slowed down the clock. And we later found out that only in this mouse do we slow down the clock. If we uh, use these drugs in wild-type mice, we don't slow down the clock. So there's some interesting biology there. But the, the main the main thing about this experiment was that it was it was trying to you know, we're trying to face the music. Uh, this the best lever for therapeutic intervention in aging, and certainly it's interest it's an interesting approach for a, a niche aspect of aging. And um, but for us it was a pivot point. It was like okay, and um, the clocks told us this isn't you know perhaps the, the best approach right now. And um, you know where do we go to look for better levers? Um, and I think around the same time, we took on an intern called Brendan Swain, who I'll talk about a lot more later. Um, and we were really excited about clocks, number one, but also the Tabulimurid Senis, which was this fantastic sort of aging resource. And um, for those that are familiar, um, the Tabulimurid Senis is a, a database um, with sort of single cell transcriptomes of the aging mouse. So sort of multiple time points in the aging mouse from every single cell and every organ in the body. It's basically a a sandpill playground for aging scientists to, you know, sort of try and come up with things and look for phenomenon. And um, and what what me and Brendan were really excited about is uh, basically, you know, looking at this and uh, looking at this uh, sort of data and um, this this data set. But secondly, the logical extension of uh, aging clocks, which is, you know, could we get a clock um, and do a CRISPR screen for aging? So could we knock out every gene in the genome, have a clock to basically get a readout? And get a relationship between every gene in the genome and aging. Yeah, you know, so sort of systematically go through everything and let the data do the talking. You know, like genes will reveal themselves according to their relationship to the clock. And um, and the technical solution that we we needed to do this CRISPR screen for aging was a single cell aging clock based on single cell transcriptome. You know, this was the enabling technology. So we basically played around with the tabulimurid senis, trying to develop methods um, for accurate single cell aging clocks. And, and the short story is we did manage to crack this problem, you know, uh, like generate accurate aging clots uh, with single cell transcriptomes. And they have advantages. They also have disadvantages. Um, but we did crack this problem. And I think just before we were going to go ahead and do the CRISPR screen, you know, with this clock as a readout, um, we realized there were a couple of problems. Firstly, um, a CRISPR screen, uh, the, the, the screen we were planning would just be single CRISPR knockouts. So on a 10x genomics machine, you can do a single CRISPR knockout in each cell and get a simultaneous, a simultaneous transcriptome for each cell. Um, but that's only single gene perturbation. So you basically limit um, limit your question to how can I rejuvenate with a single gene, you know, which isn't the more, you know, the more exciting question is how can I rejuvenate, like whether that's a combination of four genes or five genes, we don't know. So the, the 10x system that we were going to use, we didn't have access to combinatorial space. So that was the first problem. And then secondly, we realized that the, the clock read generated, um, it was built, built out of genes. Um, and these genes were very interesting, right? Some of them were you know, known aging genes. And the more we looked at them, the more we realized we were looking at a lot more than just 
a single cell aging clock, we were perhaps looking at the aging biology itself. You know, I mean, yeah, the the original epigenetic aging clocks, it's a, it's a big question. Like, what are they? Yeah, What's the underlying biology? But with these gene-based clocks, um, those answers were easier to sort of spot. And so now we're at the Jeffrey Chi Biomedical Center in the Milner Therapeutics Institute, which is Jonathan's Institute. Not everybody's got an institute, but Jonathan does. Um, and we're basically going to try and validate these genes. Um, so that's, that's a high-level story. Um, and just just a bit of detail on the technical breakthrough. So um, I have to talk in sort of simplified terms. Um, but what we what we what we did was we took a sort of a, a gene expression matrix and you know basically gene expression from single cells, and and we we basically um, do a, a dimensionality reduction. So basically, we go from genes to pathways, and this distills the information relevant uh, sort of relevant to a time course. So you know, there's aging time courses, there's rejuvenation time courses. For instance, when you express the amyloid factors, that's a time course of rejuvenation. There's also time courses for age-linked diseases, and um, which you know have an aging dimension and have a disease-specific dimension. So this method is applicable to all of those scenarios, but we, we focus on aging and rejuvenation. So we did a dimensionality reduction, and and we yeah we basically distill the information that's interesting in that um, in that time course. And then uh, secondly, we basically use these pathways as input for a machine learning model of the time course, so aging clocks basically. And the same sorts of things are in a regression. Um, and then uh, we, we basically have this model, this machine learning model, um, and this retains information about the contribution of individual genes to the model. Yeah, So it's like a ranked list of genes. You know, this gene contributes the most, and then this one and this one. And that ranking is key and allows us to prioritize certain biology over other, other biology. Um, and just some advantages of these gene clocks, because, you know, I think we, we sort of, we, you know, we realize this after the fact. So gene clocks, firstly, they allow you to um, enrich driver biology from a time course, just, just as evidenced, right? So on the left is um, the, basically, it's the relative weightings of certain genes in a clock um, trained on human fibroblast aging. And you see mitochondrial genes show up, you see ribodomal genes show up, you see a, like a gene that's sufficient on its own to drive progeria or accelerate aging on its own. Like these are these are known drivers of aging or being linked, linked to aging. And um, so it's really interesting to see. It doesn't necessarily mean that we've, you know, we're, we're better than another clock, but it's encouraging to see these things. The second thing about gene-based clocks is that you can rapidly test causality um, with mature technologies like CRISPR or overexpression. Yeah? So you can knock out a gene, activate a gene with CRISPR, or you can overexpress a gene with CRISPR and see if you, you know, affect aging according to lots of different measures. Um, and also genes are very easy to target therapeutically. So, you know, you can have a therapeutic mRNA or you can develop a molecule targeting, targeting the gene product. And the last thing is we got the single cell resolution. That was the reason we created the clock to try and get the single cell resolution. But uh, it turns out it's more of an academic interest um, um, than anything else. Um, and then just show you some of the um, some of the things we've done with this clock. So this is a, a, basically a single cell um RNA sec time course of aging fibroblasts. So we've only got five time points um, in this left hand left hand graph, but we've basically got predicted age versus actual age. So we've got a couple of samples towards the lower end and then a couple of samples towards the higher end and then sort of a middle age person in the middle around 50. Um, but you can see there's individual dots. So we can predict the age of individual um, individual cells uh, with a spit Spearman's correlation coefficient of 0.94. So that's per cell. And um, interestingly, the samples that are older, like one person seems to have aged a bit faster than the other. 
I'm sure there's an interesting story there, but you know, that's interesting to see. And then, you know, when we look at the genes that make up this, this clock, um, aging fibroblasts, we see these genes show up, which, uh, I've been linked to aging before, which is really encouraging. Um, but like I said, this method could be applied to any time course. Um, I, I guess aging is just the, you know, it was just such a, an, an area of interest for us. That's where we went to look. Um, but if you take, uh, Yamanaka's, um, public, public data, um, you can basically train a clock on rejuvenation. So actual rejuvenation means DNA methylation based readout of rejuvenation. So we basically train our predictor against that DNA methylation readout. We get a really accurate clock, 0.95 spin-month correlation coefficient. And then we get a bunch of genes and, uh, you know, these genes are, are really, um, exciting because they don't look like pluripotency genes. A lot of them look very familiar, like from the aging side. Um, and we're particularly interested. I've just labeled a couple of genes, um, because of their, their sort of expression trajectory, trajectory, trajectory. Um, so gene one, it, it basically, you know, it starts at a low level ex- of expression and very quickly, like in the first three days of, uh, the rejuvenation time course where OSKN, the Yamanaka factors are expressed, it peaks and then it sustains. So this is very similar to, you know, the rejuvenation behavior. Yeah? The, you don't have any rejuvenation for the first three days of Yamanaka factors and then you get sustained rejuvenation. So we're very interested in the type of genes that map to, uh, the, you know, this, this rejuvenation pattern. And then gene two is the opposite. Yeah. So there's a gene with high expression. It dips quickly and then it stays down. Um, so what we're, what we're trying to do now is we've got this list, um, of, of targets and we basically just want to extract combinations. So we're going to extract lots of different combinations. So there'll be non-rejuvenating gene combinations. So it's basically genes that are neutral. So, you know, our clock arrived at these genes, but they're just, you know, it's, it's just like fat. Yeah. It's like, it's just fat. It doesn't really do anything, but there are some gems amongst the fat. Not a very good analogy, but you, I think you know what I mean. And, um, and then we're going to, we're going to also find pluripotent, you know, basically we're going to find pluripotent combinations. So we want to move past this because that's where we are with the Amanaka factors. And, um, but we, we expect to see basically combinations of pluripotent and rejuvenating genes. But this is what we're really setting out to do here, finding, um, combinations of non pluripotent and rejuvenating gene combinations. And then also the interface, right, between the, all, all the other genes, really trying to separate. Um, the rejuvenation part of reprogramming from the pluripotency part. So this is a gross oversimplification. And um, there is a more detailed slide, but this is the idea, right? We have this list and now we're, we're throwing these um, into a, into a cell system where we can rapidly validate them. And um, this is our roadmap, just a very high level. And um, so we've created this, uh, this gene driver clock originally to do a CRISPR screen for aging, but um, there's, there's much more we can do with it. Uh, we've, we've just protected this, um, which makes this talk much easier. And um, what we want to do next, which is, uh, we, you know, this is a funding realm we're sort of about to open. Um, we're going to distill the minimal set of genes sufficient for to safely rejuvenate a human cell type. So, you know, we don't know what we're going to arrive at up front. You know, will we move beyond the Amanaka factors? Will there be um, slightly, slightly safer or will we actually be able to fully separate pluripotency from rejuvenation? But and um, the excitement is we can see these genes and, uh, you know, we have a confidence that we can fully separate. And there are others like Calico that have shown that you can start to separate, but they haven't sort of exhausted, exhausted the, the path ahead. And um, so once we, once we arrive at that sort of minimal um, gene set, and um, we'd like to then, you know, basically it's a big IP milestone. So we pass some IP and then, then the real work begins, which is we've got to start basically lead development. So. 
Um, for a general purpose rejuvenation therapeutic, um, we've, we've developed that ourselves, but if, if, um, we, you know, there's a particular disease indication, um, we don't want to have to build a specialist pharma company again. So we'd probably partner with pharma for that one, but that's, that's, that's the next stage. So one step at a time and just some of the characters, um, that have been roped into this. So myself, um, I originally had a training in mitochondrial biology and but then, you know, through that, through the sort of pursuit of rejuvenation, not just mitochondrial rejuvenation, I've ended up in a very different place. Uh, Brendan was a, an intern with us in 2018 and sort of just, we maintained a conversation and, and this is, this is basically the direction we're going now. It's, um, it's Brendan's, it's Brendan's doing. So he deserves most of the credit. Uh, Romina, I worked with, um, when I was a mitochondrial biologist, um, we brought her in so we could put her in Wolf Reich's lab and do these first cot measurements. Uh, Steve Ives, not my brother. He is my dad. Um, he's not taking our rejuvenation drugs. He does look quite young. Um, so he's, he had a, he was a serial entrepreneur. So, you know, he's just, you, if you've got that card to play, um, you got to involve that person. He, he just saved us a lot of effort and dead ends and making stupid mistakes. So I'd be crazy not to turn on him, although it's complicated, right? You've got a family relationship and, um, the work relationship and then we are recruiting uh, a number of positions once we've got a bit more money we can recruit all of those but you know we are recruiting at least one lab scientist right now and just because we need we just need to see if it's going to work or not right it's uh it's like you know now's the time and these are some of our, our, our advisors so jonathan milner is a fantastic angel based in cambridge uk um he's founded many very interesting companies uh appcam was his baby uh, more recently, Foremost, Elex. Uh, anyway, you, you can look him up. Ken Raj has been um, a co-author on many of the landmark epigenetic aging clock studies. Uh, Ken's a fantastic guy, it's a real diamond. Um, and he's, you know, he's given us some fantastic advice um, you know, um, over a period of time. Paul Fright let us into his lab um, very generously. Um, and he's doing some really interesting things on aging, particularly multiomics. So at the moment, uh, the aging clocks are confined to one omic layer, but if you've got multi-omics, you can train clocks across layers. It starts to get crazy, but in a good way. Um, Aubrey's been really supportive, fantastic, from a long time ago. Um, very busy these days, but um, yeah, he's, he's great. And then David Billington, um, he's got some serious experience in uh, sort of big pharma companies, just make sure we've got our head screwed on. Um, and now just some supporters. So Milner Therapeutics Institute, where I'm based, um, it's sort of like an accelerating environment. Well, it's not necessarily an accelerator, but it's like working in a big institute, but we're a small company embedded inside, so we can just do things faster. And we're basically here for this all hands-on-back experiment. I'm really pleased uh, that Alison accepted us as an accelerator company. Um, you know, we have been going, um, going sort of for four years, um, but we're very small, so we're only three full-time employees. Um, I think all the help we can get, to be honest, that's a good thing. And we were part of the Creative Destruction Labs, which is like a, uh, almost like a virtual Y Combinator, um, a Canadian based, uh, Canadian based effort. Um, and I was actually put in touch with, uh, somebody that's been very, you know, been very valuable to us. Accelerate Babram, that was, uh, basically Babram's the site that Wolf Reich was at. And we were, went on this accelerator. We got a nice big check, um, and we got lab space and things like that. Um, and so that's, that's basically us. And then I think because I'm talking to this group um, and the, you know, the ability to this group is so, uh, so uh, large, um, it's a good place to ask for technical solutions. So if anybody's working on these technical solutions, this would also help accelerate things. So um, I don't know if any of these things are possible, 
Um, but if, if you don't ask, you don't get. So uh, the first thing is, um, it's basically a skin and blood clock, uh, skin and blood clock, but for biological age. So there's something called the skin and blood clock at the moment, but it's for chronological age. So basically you can measure aging in fibroblasts and that also tracks aging in the blood. So it's all there's a connection between what's going on in vitro in your dish and what's going on in real humans. Um, but that's just for chronological age. And if we want to develop therapeutics, they're going to have to target diseases. And, and so what we would really like is something like a, a, a grim age that we can use in a dish or a systems age from organ of being that we can use in a dish. So when we're testing things in a dish, we can say, oh, look, our time to heart disease is going up yeah, we're in response to this perturbation. We'd like to know as soon as possible. So that would just be fantastic. We'd like de-risk the project substantially. We could show that we're actually like pushing away in a pro- with a prophylactic intervention, pushing away age-linked diseases. Um, secondly, maybe a little bit simpler, a biological age clock for mice. So if you could track like pathological age-related changes um, and you basically train a clock, including those changes and chronological age. So we could basically test our interventions and do those mice move further away from age-linked pathologies. Uh, again, it just helps de-risk things. Because, um, yeah, grim age, you'd have to do human studies and systems age, you'd have to do human studies and we can't just teleport to human studies. We've got to get there. And um, uh, uh, thirdly, once we're in human studies or even these these biological age clocks, if they were disease-optimized, yeah, so if there was like a grim age for heart disease um, that was optimized, so it just it gives, get, gave us the best possible resolution, uh, that would be great. Um, you know, if we were targeting a certain disease, having a clock corresponding to that disease would be great. Obviously, we can have that in a mouse, even better. We can have that in a dish, even better. And um, number four, I know that you only get three wishes, but number four, single cell multionics. So if we could just basically do multionics for a time course, whether that's aging or rejuvenation, and train a clock that basically picks out the best biology, whether it's a CPG site, whether it's a gene, whether it's a uh, chromatin accessibility you know we just you know we, we're able to sort of cherry pick the best features not just the layer that we've decided to use you know whether that's a transcriptome or something else so if anybody can come up with some good multiomics methods uh, that would be great um, i think wolf reich has uh, developed something called fc nmt sec and um, i won't elaborate the acronym but i think that measures three molecular layers and they've got plans for four and five i, I really think that's going to be fantastic um, and then lastly Basically, uh, just data sets for age-linked disease time courses. So, you know, there's a relative um, abundance. I know it's, it's relative, but there's an abundance of aging time courses and rejuvenation time courses. But age-linked disease time courses are, are a little bit harder to come by. Um, but when when you've got these methodologies, you can train them on the age-linked disease. So you can potentially pull out the driving biology for the disease-specific side and also the aging side. And you, you know, you put those two together, you've, you've really got something um, interesting. And if you if you want to get hold of me, my email address is Daniel um, at shiftbioscience.com. I'm going to be on swap card um, uh, at the scheduled time. And um, I'll be trying that for the first time. Sorry if it's, uh, yes, sorry if I don't get the hang of that um, fast enough. That's the address um, if you don't have it. And um, also just an extra bonus engagement um, tomorrow. Um, me and Brendan uh, and some, some others have been playing around with something called Pluto. So basically, it's like a virtual space, um, but it's like Zoom, yeah. So you've sort of got your face, but on on this cube, um, and you can like walk around as this cube, and you can talk to each other in this virtual space. And like we put our aging clock on the uh, the wall, so we could talk about that a bit more. But basically, if you've got a, a browser, you can just use it. It's pretty good. 
Um, I've only got it to work with Safari, so there might be some gremlins. Yeah, so sorry about that. But it's it's a lot of fun. Me and Brendan are de- desperately trying to maintain a professional base here because we're having way too much fun with this. Um, but we'll be there from 8 a.m. Pacific time tomorrow, which is 4 p.m. our time. Um, if you want to have like a, a sort of you know high feedback discussion outside of the constraints of uh, um, swap card. And that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's it. I've just got some appendix slides, but um, I'll already go to those if we need to. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, that was much, much more than uh, uh, than I expected. This is awesome. Um, I think maybe just remind people uh, in the chat uh, when they can catch you tomorrow, I am going to remind them about the swap card. Um, so just that people already know uh, how to follow up if what we're discussing now is not enough. But let's move to the Q&A. I think uh, Nir had his first question and then we will go with Shish. Uh, Daniel, first of all, that was really terrific. Everything about it, the ID and the preliminary data and 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 you're terrific and congratulations. Um, I have really question, uh, t- two kind of questions there. The first one is, am I understanding right that you're working on from data on mice and on fibroblasts that are taken from mice? And if so, why not humans? And I'll and when you answer, I'll tell you why I'm asking. <laughs> sure. So um, we the, the data I presented was actually um, data from human fibroblasts. Um, and yeah, so there was an aging time course uh, and that was, that was human fibroblasts, so human subjects. I think there were a couple towards, it was polarized, yeah, so there were a couple that were young one in the middle and a couple that were sort of 70 years old. Um, but they, they were humans. And the rejuvenation type course was human fibroblasts. So um, I think Yamanaka basically took, they were age 60 and took them back. Um, but we have done this on mice as well. Um, and it shows similar similar results. So we did all of the experimenting, but to, to create the method on the tablimira senis, but then we applied it to human cells. And we see the really exciting stuff in the human cells. So, so the, the reason I'm asking is that I have a, I have data that you'll understand. I haven't published where uh, we took uh, humans and gave them uh, metformin and placebo or arcabos and placebo, you know, ITP drugs. And it it was a a crossover study, Uh, but we did the same in animals. So we have transcript from humans and from animals treated for the same time, equivalent dose of drugs. And, And to our surprise, the transcripts are not the same. although. Although the the upstream regulators are the same, okay, but the transcripts are not the same. So I I think we have to be careful how we go from human to animals, and, and of course you know the, you know the deputy, the clocks are not the same, right? So I I think uh, I, I think from a develop a drug development, you should really think only on humans, right? In this sense, otherwise you're uh, you're, you're you'll be you might be confused with the experiments. The second question for you is: Are you putting some positive controls? What I mean is, um, do you do you put to the to those uh, fibroblasts? Do you treat them with metformin or rapamycin or NAD or something that actually has effect on epigenetics? But but actually to get the 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 land the land field of 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 what you're doing uh, in relationship to gerotherapeutics yeah i think that's that's an obvious thing to do i don't think we've done that so far which is like let's look at like you know gold standard interventions like what does rapamycin do 
to this clock. Yeah, and if it does the expected things, the clock's meaningful or more meaningful. And um, yeah, I think that's an obvious thing we can do that we haven't done. And, and what it doesn't do, right? I mean, what it doesn't do things you you want to know if you're adding to anything now and is it important? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Terrific, thank you. Thanks, man. Well, more work carved out for you. It's <laughs> great work. Yep. Um, okay, well, Carl had a um, point that's directly, I think, piggybacking on you. So, Carl, do you just want to go before we move uh, further down the question? Hmm, I'm not sure what point you're thinking about because I just hit enter on my point responding to Nier. So the nice thing about this platform with regard to humans versus mice is that they should be able to look at both sets of clocks and actually limit the things that work in both. And of course, we care about them working in humans, but if we go down, you know, if they go down a clinical path, then working in mice is a good thing if it's the same thing that can work in both. But the platform should allow filtering, you know, if there are enough leads, should allow filtering down to things that work in both. Okay, good. We leave it at this or any comebacks. All right. Then next one up, we have Ashish. Hi, Daniel. Very nice talk. I also agree with Nir. Uh, if we can have like human data, it, it would be really nice. I have two questions to you. So as you know, single cell sequencing is a little biased towards less expressed genes, such as transcription factor, which is really important for aging and pathway generation. So how did you solve this problem? And my second question will be, how are you, do, are you doing like whole methylome analysis for identifying cell biological age, which is coupled with CRISPR? Okay, so the first question, I'm going um, to defer that to Brendan, because uh, that's very specific. But with, with respect to the rejuvenation time course, um, it wasn't actually single cell data in the rejuvenation time course. It was, um, there were cells that were sorted for a cell surface marker of pluripotency, so it's actually bulk measurements, um, but we can use the same method on bulk measurements. So we don't have this, uh, like you said, in single cell data, you have this coverage problem. And the rejuvenation side, we, we we don't have to worry so much about that. For your first, yeah, for the for the, um, for the single cell data, I will have to defer to Brendan for that one. Um, so yeah, let me write that down, and I'll point your name down as well. What? Uh, I can answer that now if you want. Brendan's on the call. Yep. That's great. Um, so I think I don't want to reveal too much about the method just, you know, because of IP concerns. Um, but basically, uh, the, the method isn't, isn't just based on, um, you know, the absolute variance of, of genes, which should be the major contributor um, to that problem of picking out genes that are the most variable across the data set, which is kind of how a lot of this kind of analysis is done. Um, but we've we've basically made great efforts to to basically um, you know allow genes to contribute equally to the clock uh, and make sure that we're not we're not favouring the loudest shouters essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Sorry, Ashish, could you repeat your second question? So I've got that ready. Um, my second question was like, are you doing whole methylome analysis for identifying cell biological age or are you doing a specific uh, methylation signature? So we've started on the transcript home, um, but I, I think I, I sort of talked about multiomics where, you know, if there were multiomics, basically we, we were we were at the mercy of the public data sets to begin with, the Tabidimira Senes, 
and aging time courses and human cells. And, and we're just starting to generate our own bespoke data sets for the systems that we're going to be using to try and validate our genes. And so, yeah, we'd be looking to do beyond transcriptomics and when we start doing things ourselves, but in, in the basically early days, we were at the mercy of the public data set. So I don't think there was anything there at the time. I think, did you say metabolomics? Um, we, did, we, did, we weren't able to use that. Mm. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. Lovely. Uh, we have Jyoti next. Um, I, I will ask it for you if you don't mind. Um, her question was, is all the data limited to fibroblast? No. So um, in the tablumura sanus, which is mouse, let's just qualify that as mouse, you've got um, a lot of different cell types. Certain cell types have richer time courses. So, you know, as far as, you know, using our clocks is concerned, we're better off with a richer time course. Um, but on the, the human side and um, on the rejuvenation side as well of human uh, humans, um, I think there's, there's reprogramming paradigms from five different cell types. So, you know, reprogram from endothelial cells, reprogram from like four other cell types and you can train multi-tissue rejuvenation clocks across all of those and see what the biology is. And um, because obviously if it works across lots of tissues, the translation is the, the potential is higher from a translation, translation perspective. Uh, so yeah, not just fibroblasts. We're not just going to, you're not just going to be, you know, have really great young fibroblasts and the rest of your body falls apart around your fibroblasts. And we are, we are sort of, we are shooting a bit higher. Okay, lovely. Then uh, I know that you've already uh, came up with a wish list here for this group, uh, but you know, just to really be quite specific about like what would actually uh, really help uh, help you move this project forward now. Um, and you know, if anyone here is on the call that, or even afterwards, for those that will watch it on YouTube, like what are specific ways in which you know they can reach out to you uh, at making it as actionable as possible, perhaps uh, is uh, a good way to go. Yeah, so beyond the wish list, which is um, maybe a little bit further in the future, some of those things, um, immediately we just we just want to test these genes as fast as possible. And we're doing a lot of these things for the first time. So, you know, we're just looking for people like uh, preferably in Cambridge, UK, that can help us, you know, like, you know, we need a lab scientist at a very minimum. And um, we are raising a, a, a certain amount of capital. It's not of a ridiculous amount, but it's it's a lot more than we've raised before. So, if there's anybody out there that's very passionate in clock about clocks and trying to find sort of go beyond Yamanaka factors, you know, explore, explore the unknown, see what's there. You know, there's so much that we don't know. Okay. And it's just, it's exciting to have an approach where we can reach some of that. If, if any of that sounds exciting to you and you want to help move that forward, then um, please get in touch. And um, really, really, it's just, we need, you know, the support now would be so much more uh, appreciated than say in six months time. Like we, we really need to get going now. Because uh, they're, they're just sitting on the list, right? It's just be, be such a tragedy that we're sitting on that list for any longer than necessary. So we just want to start testing it. Okay, great. You've included the urgency in it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 Okay, maybe uh, and a little, um, and anyone else who has a more specific question, please stop me. Otherwise, I will just uh, go and ask a few more general questions about um, you know, what? Do, where do you see, if, if this is successful, where do you actually see it? I mean, you already talked a little bit about immediate next steps, but where do you see, you know, like uh, potentially this going in like five to 10 years? Like, are there any, you know, would be um, kind of like very, very high hanging fruits that you hope to be able to eventually uh, get to? Yeah, so I just just up front, um, you know, uh, drug development's a very long and painstaking process. So you've got to, you know, you've got to set expectations. But at the same time, 
you know, the, the whole COVID response, the, the, you know, the, you know, the goalposts, the goalposts were moved for that. I've got a feeling that, you know, if, if there was something really exciting and safe moving forwards, there'd be a certain amount of energy pushing that forwards beyond expectation. Um, so I don't know, in five, five to, I mean, in 10 years time, I'd expect something to be, you know, late, late clinical stage, but it's so, there's so many steps in between, right? And uh, I think getting it right is more important than timeline. But obviously, the faster the better, because if you get these things to work, it's, it, it, we'd rather have these things sooner. I think even before that, it would be really, it would be really great. Just when we when we found the list of say safe rejuvenation genes, to engineer sort of a mouse embryonic stem cell that you can just induce these genes, so you don't have to worry about sort of all the, you know, getting drugs to every part of the body, but just induce it in a mouse embryonic stem cell, induce them, and then just watch the clocks. And I do the clocks, yep, go up, and can you just basically reset to infinity? Is that the first mouse where you can, yeah, you know, that would be a really eye-opening, you know, just spectacle, yeah, to see what would happen there. So I think ge- generating that mouse embryonic stem cell would be a really exciting thing that isn't so far in the future, but you'd have to give that a bit of time, right, for that mouse to basically live. There'll be people that aren't specialists or that aren't enthusiasts and they'd be waiting for you know the mouse to just live longer yeah. exciting and you already talked a little bit about the race you know at the beginning uh, of the talk and do you have any ideas and you know potential collaborations going forward even uh, um with, with other folks in that race because I, i think what's so exciting about you and i, I guess making results on this call is that you know you're really trying to pull the whole ecosystem up and like you know you, you've been doing quite a lot uh quite a lot of work on this so i think it's Really interesting how you position yourself really in this ecosystem of like a rising uh, tide. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Steve Horvath's Clock Foundation, like just developing these clocks before, you know, to basically speed the drug development, that's great. I think Morgan Levine's got some really cool stuff by like enhancing the clocks. That's an obvious one. And I, I think it's, it's very hard for me to uh, sort of analyze what's out there and sort of try and connect that to what I'm doing. So If you think you connect what you're doing, obviously I, I'm going to take the time to listen to that and see if that is, if, you know, that is a good fit. And um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'll keep an open door and it served me well. Lovely. Well, we do have, I think, Morgan on this call. I'm not sure if Steve's on it right now, but <laughs> if that uh, tickles your interest, then uh, yeah, maybe you can reach out to, uh, to Daniel too. Um, all right. Lovely. Uh, I think Carl made a comment. Do you want to make it here in? No. Okay. Well, then you, maybe you could look at it uh, uh, in the uh, in the chat. And you know, do you think that there's any um, you know potential? Yeah, any potential risks or downsides that you see, like uh, on the like, let's say, you know, any any potential reasons why this could not work that um, you know uh, you could like really uh, with which you could falsify those. And in the next few years or so, like, is there anything that keeping you up at night? I mean, you're already testing this, right? But uh, is there anything else where you're like, okay, well, this would uh, really be a potential bottleneck that we need to overcome that, you know, maybe people here in this call could even advise on. Yeah, I, I think, I think the, the, the thing that keeps me up at night is translatability. So we could get very excited about what we're doing in our specific system. Um, but then we don't, we don't have a connection to all the other systems. So I guess steeple of mammalian clock is a really great way to try and dispel some of these fears, you know, because it's connected to so many different uh, contexts of aging. So when you move that and, um, you know, you've, you've really moved something. So that's one way to do it. But yeah, it's, it's just making sure we're not system specific. So if we do find a minimal set of safe rejuvenation genes, we just want to 
you know, broaden from our first cell type to multiple cell types, make sure that works in mice. We've got to go through mice to get to humans, whether, whether or not we like it, maybe organoids, you know, yeah, just all of the systems. Yeah. Just make sure we, there's no reason to go narrow yeah, and sort of try and save, pe- save pennies when we could just, just sort of increase the breadth and translatability. So I think translatability is the biggest worry. Um, and on the safety side, yeah, can, can we fully deconvolute from pluripotency? So that's not a foregone conclusion, right? So we need to do the study. So there's a, there's a discovery element list, but there's, there's a lot of promise just from what we've done so far. And um, so, yeah, the opportunities there, right? And we just got to make the most of it. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.